1: Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm super nervous. This
0: is our third time trying this. We're having some technical difficulties, <laughs> but I think we're going to get it. So every time I hear your voice, I'm like, I hope she didn't say that four minutes ago. I, I don't know what I'm responding <laughs> to. So <laughs> Great way to kick yeah. off the new year.
1: Great way. Yeah, yeah. I feel like every time we have just even a little bit of time off, we come back and we it's like we forgot how to do everything. It's like taking baby steps all over again. (laughs) And
0: it's like we were barely a toddler at the end of the year, and now we're right back to like infant waking up 16 times in the middle of the night.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We are regressing. (laughs) We are. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm very excited to be back. It is the first episode of the new year, and- yeah. And I had a nice uh, relaxing time off. We yep. did not do a whole lot. It was just great. We just lounged around the house and it went by kind of fast, but then also kind of slow. So I'm happy to be back to work and being back to writing and getting back into my typical routine. And yeah, I'm just happy. Yeah. Happy to be back. I
0: love routines. I realize after having time off, like I thrive with a routine, even if it Me doesn't too. make sense, but like I, I do much better, I'm happier, and I'm not like all over the house like, why isn't anybody cleaning anything? And it's like, well, because everyone's right. around you 24-7 <laughs> not doing anything. So that's why they're right. not cleaning. <laughs> so yes, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for the new year, excited to get back to normal, and super excited about this story. This is a bananas story that I really had... No, I had never heard of this story until I kind of came across it in the past couple weeks, but it was brand new to me. But
1: what a story it is. It is quite a story, I will say. It's also one that I have never heard of somehow, even though the more I started digging into it, I was like, well... I feel like maybe a few people have heard of this but I'm not one of them Me so hopefully yeah so maybe this will be the first time you have ever heard of it if you like stories that do have a lot going on then this is going to be one <laughs> that you will really enjoy uh, so the story starts with what could be the beginning of a fairy tale romance really and it quickly derails into a perplexing murder story that leaves you wondering whether the murder was committed in cold blood or whether the killer acted in self defense The story begins the way a lot of true crime stories begin, which is with a 911 call. In most cases, the shocking details of a crime and really what led up to it don't come out until the investigation and really after the fact, you know, after the murder has happened. And in this case, a really wild story unfolds that involves wealthy firearms dealers, the CIA, polo players, a love for animals and a love story gone wrong. It was early in the morning on September 7th, 1997, when the 911 call came into Fauquier County, Virginia Sheriff's Office. A woman's voice said, rather calmly, that she was calling to report, quote, a shot man and he's dead, end quote. Unlike some 911 callers, this woman was really far from being hysterical. She was completely composed as she informed the dispatcher of the location, which she said was Ashland Farm. Ten minutes later, emergency personnel began to arrive at the scene. Ashland Farm wasn't just some random farmhouse in Virginia. It was built in 1725 and underwent a major renovation in the 1930s, and throughout the years, it was a well-known estate with all the bells and whistles. In 1984, the estate was purchased by a man named Sam Cummings, and just like Ashland Farms was no ordinary estate, Sam was no ordinary guy. Born in 1927, Sam developed an early interest in weapons after he was given a Maxim gun at the age of 5. So Melissa, I don't know if you've ever heard of a Maxim gun. I had not ever no. heard of that, so mm-hmm. I actually, but I when I had saw the term, it had a capital M, so I was like, "Oh, this is like actually a thing." So I went to Google and like googled what it was. And a Maxim gun was the first recoil operated machine gun. And so when I looked at pictures of this, this this weapon looks so like old and just very before our times, you know, yeah, yeah. very before modern times, it looks like an ancient weapon to me. It's very big. It's not like you would think of a machine gun. It's like, it looks more like a cannon. It sits on mm-hmm. the ground and it's just very big and bulky. So it wasn't like um, somebody gave him like a handgun when he was five years old. Cause I, when that, that's what I was thinking when I first read this. I was like, what in the world? Who gave this kid right. <laughs> a gun? But then, you know, and then I was like, no, it really wasn't that. It was like this old ancient weapon thing. So his interest in weapons led him to join the army and become a weapons specialist after World War II. After serving his time in the army, he attended college on the GI Bill, and he went to George Washington University. In 1950, while he was in college, Sam was recruited by the CIA as a weapons expert, and he began traveling Europe. He was to buy up surplus weapons from World War II to be used in Hollywood productions as well as for the government of Taiwan and he was also tasked with identifying weapons captured in the Korean War. By 1953,
0: Sam was starting to realize the potential in arms dealing, and he started up a company that he called InterarmCo. The company was based in Alexandria, Virginia, with a warehouse in Manchester, England, and in other international locations. He used his education and skill to obtain surplus weapons in large quantities so that he could sell them to both private and government buyers all around the world. This business boomed in the 50s and 60s. The company sold military firearms in the U.S., commonly to retired GIs and sportsmen. Sam's method for obtaining and selling these weapons made them cheaper than buying them from domestic manufacturers, and before long, Inner Armco Co. had all but taken over the market. Sam became an export sales agent for numerous small arms manufacturers and eventually became one of the original agents for Armalite and personally demonstrated the AR-10 rifle to nations including Nicaragua and the Dominican Republic. In the 1950s, Sam sold 100 AR rifles to the Cuban dictator at the time, but the entire shipment was intercepted by the rebel forces of Fidel Castro. This ended up being a whole thing, and those rifles ended up falling into the hands of rebels wanting to overthrow the leader of the Dominican Republic. In 1959, they did invade the Dominican Republic. The AR-10s from Sam's shipment were found on the bodies of guerrillas that were killed by Dominican forces, and when officials learned that Sam had essentially provided these weapons to their enemies, they were obviously not very happy. Around this time, Sam took off to live in Europe and kept his warehouses worldwide while keeping the Interarm Co. headquarters in Virginia. In the late 60s, the U.S. Gun Control Act of 1968 put a damper on Sam's arms import business because it restricted the import of surplus military firearms. I enjoy reading this and like talking about this as if I have really much of a clue what's going on right. in like international <laughs> firearms distribution. I'm like, sure, sure, sure. Got it. AR. Yes. Got it. So from this point on, the company was sustained by importation of foreign firearm brands, which was pretty successful. Inner Arms is responsible for bringing many quality foreign brands to the U.S., including Star Pistols. Sam, in his business of selling guns, was extremely successful and extremely lucrative. He became one of the world's leading arms dealers, and there was this article that was written back in 1967, which called him the largest private arms dealer in the world. And with that, he also became rich. Filthy, filthy rich. And this guy did not have millions of dollars. He actually had billions of dollars. So Sam and his company supplied thousands of guns to governments and dictators all over the globe. He was quoted as saying, quote, what most people don't seem to realize is that there is just as much money to be made out of the wreckage of a civilization as from the upbuilding of one, end quote. So... Even after saying all of that, everything this guy was doing was legal and his business did operate within the law, even though that quote is one of the more disturbing things I've read in this new year. So far. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) it's young, but I feel like it could be a winner for quite some time. So at his highest point, Sam's company controlled over 90 percent of the world's private trade in guns and reported gross annual
1: sales of 100 million dollars. Wow. While visiting Geneva, Switzerland, Sam met a woman named Irma, and he became enchanted with her. They married in 1960, and that's when they moved to Monaco and rented a flat in Monte Carlo. And for some reason, when I hear the word flat, I guess it's like an apartment sort of. I'm sure there's some difference. It's not an apartment. Otherwise, it would be called an apartment. But I always picture something small, right? But this flat that they had in Monaco was not small at all. It was like an elevated mansion, essentially, Ooh. like it was like huge and had like a ton of rooms and gorgeous, right? Of course. <laughs> yeah. So if you don't know much about Monte Carlo, it's really where the absolute wealthiest people in the world like to live. It's situated south of France and right next door to Italy and has this really fairy tale like setting with these breathtaking views of the Mediterranean. Monaco is a principality and it's completely sovereign from France, although it basically is located in France. But what makes it so attractive to people with billions of dollars is that it is a tax haven. Dating back to 1869, Monaco has never imposed a personal income tax on its residents. And the tax laws and policies for individuals and businesses are extremely lax compared to other countries as well, which makes it a very attractive place for the super wealthy to take up residence. And speaking of taking up residence, it's actually very easy to become a resident of Monaco, You must live there for three months a year or longer and buy a residence. And that is, of course, if you can afford one. The area has become so high profile and very posh, and there are virtually no people living in poverty that actually live in Monaco, and it literally is just a place for the ultra wealthy. So all that to say, Sam Cummings and his new wife Irma sure did pick one heck of a place to move and start a family. In 1962, the couple welcomed not one, but two daughters. They had fraternal twins who they named Suzanne and Diana, on July 21st. To say these girls were born with a silver spoon in their mouths and really grew up in the lap of luxury would just be an understatement. As we said, their father had billions of dollars, so they were really born just right into this kind of lifestyle. They were born in Monaco. That's like Nobody's. I feel like no one's born in Monaco, you know, yeah. like you only just move there, like eventually, you know, when you grow up and have billions of dollars.
0: Yeah. I thought you, whenever you said Monte Carlo, when you were like, if, if you know what Monte Carlo is, I got it confused with the count of Monte Crisco. So I truly had no <laughs> idea. <laughs> I was like in my head, I'm like, what is that word? And I'm trying to think, I'm like, oh, I clearly have no idea what's going on here. So yes, right. they were built, they were quite privileged.
1: Right. So these twins didn't really get to spend much time with their dad because he traveled so much for his work, but they really had a lovely childhood with all the luxuries anybody could ever dream of. As sisters, they had an amazing bond. And according to the family, the girls often engaged in what is called twin speak from a very early age. But there was some signs of jealousy and competition between them as they started getting older and growing up. As we said before, they were fraternal
0: twins, and the two of them were just about as opposite as any two siblings could be. Not only did the two look completely different from each other, but they also had completely different personalities. Deanna was more confident and outgoing and had a lot of friends, while Suzanne was more introverted and really just liked to spend a lot of time alone in her room. She just wasn't really interested in the same things that Deanna was, and she preferred things like fast cars and target shooting. The family owned another home in Switzerland where Irma was from, and it was literally a chalet in the Bernese Alps, which are words that I can say sort of and kind of have (laughs) an idea of what they are, but like, just know I went into that sentence with a lot of trepidation. So, (laughs) So they spent the summers there and got to experience a completely different and much slower paced way of life than what they had when they were living in Monaco. The view from the chalet was equally amazing as the view from their flat on the Mediterranean Sea. In Switzerland, the landscape right out of the window was a dramatic view of snow-capped mountains and cliff sides. The chalet was on top of a cliff with the Rhone Valley below them. It was in Switzerland that Suzanne and her sister were introduced to horses and horseback riding. They used to go to a neighbor's barn and play with the animals there and take riding lessons. And Suzanne really, really enjoyed this. By the time they were teenagers, Suzanne and Diana were well aware of the differences that were between them. To put it bluntly, Diana knew that she was the smarter, better looking, and more popular twin, and Suzanne knew that she lacked the spark that Diana's personality had. Diana attracted the attention of many boys as a teenager, but Suzanne was mostly unnoticed. She wasn't really interested in the same things Diana was, like wearing cute dresses and makeup, so Suzanne continued to develop her relationship with animals, and in particular, she really loved horses. She absolutely loved animals and seemed to prefer their company over the company of people. Unfortunately, the lavish life this family had created wasn't able to continue forever.
1: When the twins were nine years old, they learned about a problem regarding their citizenship status. The problem was determining where the twins even had citizenship. So although Sam Cummings was a U.S. citizen, the twins were born abroad, right? They were born in Monaco. And a new ruling at the time by the Supreme Court said that children born to American parents abroad could not obtain a U.S. passport unless they lived in the U.S. for at least three consecutive years between the ages of 15 and 26. So this was really going to be kind of a problem since nobody in the Cummings family had really ever considered living in the United States again. I mean, when your two houses are Monaco and in the Alps, I feel like I wouldn't come back either, you know, to the United States. I wouldn't, that wouldn't be on my radar. You have a chalet. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and a, and a flat on the Mediterranean Sea. Like what, what else could you ever want? Right. Literally in life. <laughs> But the problem was if they did not go to the U.S. and live there with the twins, then the twins would never be able to gain citizenship in the United States. And then this problem got worse when the family learned that the girls also were not eligible for citizenship in Switzerland, where their mother was from, because they were born abroad in Monaco. And then so everyone's probably like, well, of course, they were citizens of, you know, Monaco, where they were born. But actually, they were not legal citizens there either. (laughs) As it turns out, there are strict legal requirements there that make it so that children born in Monaco to foreigners and transplants must have a lineage of five consecutive generations before they are eligible for citizenship. So that is so crazy to me that people can be born there. But like unless you have a line of family that was also born there, you're not a citizen. Isn't that crazy? It is. That's so crazy that the lineage thing just blows my
0: mind how they can be like, mm, actually, there's fine print and <laughs> right. you don't have five <laughs> generations. Move on. Go back to
1: Switzerland. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It is. It really is crazy. I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense if you're thinking because, you know, Sam Cummings wasn't from Monaco and neither was, you know, their mom. So it's like, I don't know. I mean, that's just not that's not how we do things in the United States when people are born here, you know, from abroad that they are born here. But That's just crazy to me that like the girls could not get, they didn't have citizenship anywhere. I'm like, what a predicament. Like, how crazy would that be? Yeah. Like, like, where are we going to have, where are our girls going to have citizenship? That's just crazy. They're citizens of the sky. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So the family had to either move to the United States, as I said, and live there, or like we said, Susan and Deanna, I guess, would not have citizenship anywhere, you know, legally. But somehow in a crazy twist of fate, Sam was able to obtain British passports for himself and his twin daughters. And he also hired a lawyer to help people in similar situations where, you know, they have children abroad and they're, you know, kind of in this, yeah. having the same struggle. In 1971, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that any child born to an American citizen will inherit citizenship regardless of where they are born. So the twins ended up having British citizenship and then they were also able to get U.S. citizenship. After high school, when it was time to think about higher education, the girls decided that they did want to move to the United States. Suzanne and Deanna attended the all-girl Mount Vernon College in Washington, D.C. For these siblings, higher education was just something to do for fun, really. They lived off their father's money, and they never found themselves in a situation of actually needing to work for a living. Suzanne obtained a degree in arts and humanities, but her real passion, as we said before, was her love for animals. When the twins were 22 years old, their father, Sam, bought the Ashland Farm estate and the two girls lived at it. He actually bought two estates. I don't know the name of the second one. I should have put it in here. I saw it in one of the sources while I was researching. And they're very close together. And he bought them both thinking one twin would live at right. you know Ashland Farm estate and the other one would live at this other estate. But then the twins actually ended up living in the same estate together. So I don't mention the second estate that he bought. Yeah. One estate is is one enough. Yeah. Like. <laughs> <laughs> and so we are going to get into a lot more details of this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors.
0: 2021 is a new year filled with new promise, and for a lot of us, it's a great time to start new routines. I want to work on healthier habits, and that includes sleep for the whole family. I've spoken on the show before about how my son is a notoriously terrible sleeper. To get him to sleep, I normally have to lay down with him in silence for hours until he falls asleep. But thanks to the Nomoshi app, he's going to bed a whole lot quicker these days, making a healthy sleep routine a resolution we can actually keep.
1: It's easy to see why Moshi is the number one sleep and mindfulness audio app for kids. Thanks to hours of bedtime stories, soothing music, and even mindful meditation tracks that not only help kids relax, but also nurture their already imaginative minds. Plus, Moshi is always adding at least one new track a week, so there's always something new for your kids to look forward to.
0: My son is an anxious little guy, so just having Moshi on at night helps soothe his mind and relax him in ways music and sound machines never have. When he wakes up in the morning, he likes to take my phone and choose what that night's Moshi story will be. So not only am I enjoying the easier and quicker bedtimes, he's better rested and feeling better as well. Download the Moshi app, spelled M-O-S-H-I, on App Store or Google Play Store and get
1: access to a one-week free trial of Moshi Premium. There's never been a better time to take care of yourself than now. Whether something in your life is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, the licensed professional therapists with BetterHelp want to help you become the best you this year. BetterHelp is professional counseling that you can do right from the comfort of your home through weekly video or phone sessions.
0: I've used BetterHelp over the past year, and I can't tell you what a relief it is just to get all my thoughts out to a professional without having to leave the house. I deal with anxiety and depression and have most of my adult life, so just having someone I can talk through with scenarios or those immediate big problems that pop up in life has really been invaluable, especially this
1: last year. Of course, anything you share with your BetterHelp counselor is completely confidential, and best of all, BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional online counseling. Financial aid is also available. Whether you're struggling with family issues, sleep, stress, or more, BetterHelp will match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating with them in under 24 hours.
0: In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com moms. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp.com. H-E-L-P dot com slash moms. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about these twins, Suzanne and Deanna and their father who had just bought this amazing farm estate for them to live at. So Ashland Farms is 350 acres of lush countryside. Although the twins would live there, their new address would serve as the official American residence for Sam. On the property, there was a small guest house in a pasture near the main mansion. Suzanne decided to live in the modest guest house while letting Diana take up residence in the mansion. Suzanne was much more in her element out in the pasture where she was able to live among the many animals on the estate. At one point, she had over two dozen rescue cats that she was feeding and dozens of cows that Suzanne would hand-feed from birth. She also had a full stable of beautiful horses, which she shared with her sister, Diana, who also had a love for horses. Suzanne preferred the quiet work of caring for and really just being around the horses, while the outgoing Diana enjoyed entering her animals in contests and steeplechase events. So Mandy looked up steeplechase events, and they're basically something different in different places, but the idea is that it's really a horse racing event where the competitors have to jump. It's also called jump racing, but different countries have slightly different rules and guidelines, and so you really need a lot of money and status to participate in these sports. My mom used to do barrel racing, which is different than this, but like she did a lot with horses as a kid, but not this. This is very showy and not pageant-like, but it seems a lot more showy, yeah. really. It's less about the racing yeah. and stuff and more about the, uh, I don't know, presence, I I have a word a day calendar, by the way, now, but I'm only three days right. in, so <laughs> give me time. I'll have some words soon. <laughs> so Diana loved that type of atmosphere and environment. Suzanne did not. She didn't like anything social, and she was not a social person. She really just wanted to hang out in the barn and pet the animals, not to have to show them off and do really the social thing. Suzanne did like competing in some events, such as dressage, which is like dance on a horseback, and jumping. At some point, Suzanne sparked an interest in the sport of polo, and she started taking polo lessons at the Willow Run Polo School. At first, she just signed up for 10 lessons, and in the beginning, her instructor wasn't really sure if she'd be cut out for the sport, but she continued to work hard to learn the ropes and continued playing for a whole season. The next year, she went back to school to sign up again and found out that there was a new instructor from Argentina. This is eventually
1: how she came to meet an Argentine polo player named Roberto Viegas. Roberto was friends with the new instructor at the polo school, which kind of doubled as a hangout for professional Argentine polo players. Suzanne had been spending quite a bit of time at the school herself, and she was really very invested in learning the sport of polo and becoming an excellent player. Some say she actually had a crush on the instructor, but the two never had a romantic relationship. Either way, Suzanne was always at the school taking extra classes, tending to the horses and, you know, cleaning out their stalls and just being at the school, always finding some reason to be there. She really, really wanted to become involved in this world of professional polo. And she even told a novice polo player that merely taking classes wasn't going to be enough. She said that you have to date a professional if you want to truly become good at the sport. And Suzanne eventually set her sights on a professional. She set her sights on Roberto Villegas. He was quite the star when it came to polo. And since he was from Argentina, he had an automatic reputation for being the best of the best. Suzanne just loved being in his company and wanted to start an actual relationship. And lucky for her, maybe even for the first time in her life, Roberto noticed her too and appeared to be pretty smitten with her, which really surprised, you know, his friends and his fellow polo players. These are, this is an oddly matched couple, you know, to them. This is just a polo player from Argentina. And then you have this billionaire living on this massive estate. And I guess people were kind of like, "Hmm, okay, it seems like an odd matching, but the two of them seem to really enjoy each other's company. So Roberto was really this outgoing guy. He was very smiley and bubbly. And Suzanne was really relatively boring in comparison to some of the other women who typically pursued professional polo players. Usually you'll also have these outgoing women, you know, young women who want to be involved, you know, with these professional, you know, sports figures and stuff. So even Suzanne did not fit the bill for the type of person who would even go for a polo player of this, you know, magnitude. She really wasn't a socialite, and she didn't enjoy attending parties or mingling with a lot of people, and she was the type of person who preferred to just be at home watching Animal Planet every night, and just, as I said, not really what you would visualize a young polo player's partner to be like. But they hit it off, and Roberto taught Suzanne all there was to know about arena polo, and they became close enough that Roberto eventually packed up his horses and moved them to Suzanne's estate, Ashland Farms. From then on, Suzanne took on the financial burden of caring for these extra horses, and Roberto himself started spending more and more time there.
0: Something to note here is that in the world of polo, it's common for someone who has the financial means to sponsor professional athletes. How this works is someone who is very rich will provide the champion thoroughbred horse for a team of professional players to ride in tournaments. So the sponsor essentially handpicks a team of professional jockeys and the jockeys get the perk of playing the sport they love when somebody else is, you know, handling all the financial burden that goes along with it. It's a way for wealthy people who can't or don't actually play polo to still buy their way into the game. Most often they chose these athletes that are young men from Argentina. So the arrangement that Suzanne and Roberto had was sort of a crossover between a romantic relationship and a professional one. She was essentially sponsoring Roberto as a polo player while also carrying on a relationship with him. Those around the couple didn't understand the relationship at all. Roberto and Suzanne were total opposites and really kind of seemed like a terrible match together, even though the two of them appeared to be infatuated with each other. While Roberto was very animated and charismatic, Always smiling and always full of energy, Suzanne was quiet, rarely smiled, and preferred to live a very reclusive life. But as time went by and Suzanne started to accompany Roberto to more parties and events, she started to sort of come out of her shell. The impression that we kind of got is that these two kind of had a, A weirder relationship that were at least that's what other people in their lives kind of thought. So Roberto evidently started calling Suzanne's mother at some point. So if you were like, this relationship doesn't sound that weird, now does it sound weird? Because (laughs) (laughs) it does to me. So it's strange, of course, because they're sort of in a romantic relationship, but at the same time, it kind of made sense because Suzanne was the one footing this bill for everything and really taking care of Roberto. Either way, these two definitely had an unconventional relationship but
1: no one expected it to come to a violent end. The arrangement that Suzanne and Roberto had seemed to work for them just fine until the morning of September 7th when Suzanne made an eerily calm 911 call stating that a man had been shot and he was dead inside of her home. Within 10 minutes, the police were on the scene and quickly identified the victim as 38-year-old Roberto Villegas. He was found dead on the kitchen floor with four gunshot wounds and it appeared as though he'd been shot while seated at the table eating breakfast. So what exactly happened? How did this very successful Argentine polo player end up dead on the floor of a billionaire heiress's home? To get really a better understanding for how this whole thing unfolded, we really need to go back and kind of take some time to better understand who Roberto was and where he had come from. Unlike Suzanne, who had never known any life other than one of riches. Roberto was born on October 22, 1959, in a small village in Argentina and raised in poverty. His father worked hard as a cattle rancher, herding the cattle that provides Argentina the beef that takes up really a lot of their diet. His father barely made enough money to provide the essentials for his wife and three kids. They lived in a tiny bungalow that had no running water or electricity and definitely no access to things like a telephone or a television. There was an outhouse in the back of the small home where the family went to the restroom. Since money was scarce and they lived out in the middle of cattle country, the only way to really get around was on horseback, and that's how Roberto first learned how to ride horses. As he got older, he took an interest in polo, which, of course, is a nationally loved sport in Argentina. Young kids look up to and idolize their favorite polo players. But even in Argentina, the price tag that comes with actually playing polo meant that it was essentially out of the question for Roberto. So I was I don't really know anything about polo. Full disclosure, even after researching (laughs) for this episode, I I text Melissa and I was like, I don't understand polo. I don't know. I I learned more about it in the last couple of weeks than I ever have before. But definitely not to the level where I feel like I could follow the sport or play along. From what I gathered, the reason it's so expensive is to be like a part of the sport is because apparently when there's polo matches, they switch horses like, I don't know, eight or 10 times. So you have to have that many horses, right? So if you're playing in a polo match, you do show up with a whole trailer full of all of your horses that you're going to be running or that you're going to be playing with in this match. And that can be as many as eight or 10 horses. And so- Obviously, it's going to be very expensive to have that many, you know, large animals to take care of and feed. And then they have to be properly groomed and they have to all have veterinary care. They have to be oh, properly gosh. exercised. So you have to hire somebody usually to come and exercise your horses all day long, every day. So they stay in shape, you know, just all that. So it is a very, I can see how it is a very yeah, um, expensive, I- a very expensive sport. Yes, that wealthy people do get to enjoy. I mean, it sounds lovely, but yes, it does involve having access to that many animals, you know, to be able to do this with.
0: Yeah. I only know it from watching Southern Charm. And to me, it looks like just croquet on a horse, but I think it might be a little more um, involved than that. But I had no idea there were so many horses involved. That is insane to me that you'd have to trade out horses so often. I mean, I guess it gives the horses a break. Of course, that's good. But whoa, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. When Roberto was 21, he was offered the opportunity of a lifetime. A professional polo player in the U.S. wanted Roberto to come live in Florida with him and work as a groom. In exchange, he would pay Roberto a salary and give him a place to live. Roberto absolutely could not refuse this offer. And whenever I saw this thing that says a groom, I like originally had a note in here for Mandy because I was like, hang on, what is a groom? And then she explained it to me. So a groom is basically <laughs> is basically someone who takes care of your horses so you don't have to do those things that no one really wants to do, like cleaning out the animal pens. And a groom is also there to feed the animals, exercise them, and get them tacked up for polo matches. Like Mandy said, a lot of these people that, you know, wanted to have polo teams or wanted to be involved in the sport, would hire a groom, and that's their job. That's, that's a huge part of their job. They're responsible for as many as half a dozen horses each day, and they spend their time doing really nothing but caring for these horses. So although his family is really sad to see Roberto move to another country, they knew it was really a chance for him to make a life for himself. When he first got to the U.S., Roberto couldn't speak any English, and he was hardly even literate in Spanish, which was his native tongue. He was inexperienced, and thanks to his poor upbringing, he was really the butt of many jokes around the stables, including green teeth, which was in reference to Roberto's poor dental condition due to the chemicals they treat the water with in Argentina, where he grew up. But Roberto was determined to make it in the U.S., and he ignored the cruel jokes and continued to take advantage of the opportunity he had been given. When people started realizing that he was actually a very good horseman and that he knew how to play polo... He started to win the respect of fellow players, and he even had offers from patrons to play on teams in Tampa and Sarasota. Soon after he started dipping his toe into the real polo world, a local dentist offered to fix Roberto's teeth for free. He was given a full set of new white caps, which gave him a dazzling smile and really almost instantly improved his relationship with the polo crowd. But polo is a really hard sport to make it in, and while he was a very skilled player, he would also show aggression towards his opponents, which is apparently very common in polo. It's an ego-driven sport, and confrontations can often arise in the arena. We're talking very generally. I don't think everyone in polo has an ego, but it seems like it happens sometimes, right. so all of our yeah. conversations no, it, in general. It, it,
1: Right. Yeah. No, there was a couple things I read too that, that mentioned that, that it was like a very, like that was actually a term ego driven sport. And I was like, well, if they're saying that that's what it is, then I don't know any better. I don't know yeah. anything about the sports. No, totally. So that's totally. what we're calling it. Yeah. yeah, Yeah.
0: I get it. So sometimes though, Roberto would go a step too far. Like once he hit a man in the face with his mallet after the player scored a goal off of him.
1: Yikes. When Roberto was first introduced to Suzanne at the polo school, he was actually just visiting the area and he was still living in Florida full-time. Early in the relationship, Susan went to visit him in Florida and got to witness firsthand what his short temper was like when he became angry after a polo match. She chalked it up to him just being heated and having a moment, but she was so infatuated with this idea of being with Roberto that she brushed this incident off as nothing. By the time Roberto and Suzanne had met, Roberto had become a small-time polo star. But it wasn't until Roberto's death that the police learned the extent of his history with angry outbursts. After the shooting, Suzanne hired a high-powered attorney who wasted no time digging into Roberto's past. He learned that in September of 1987, which was 10 years earlier, Roberto had been involved in a pretty serious domestic abuse situation with another woman in Illinois. Margaret Bunnell had been dating Roberto and had learned that he wasn't being faithful to her when two other women showed up at her house and claimed that they were also having relations with him. Margaret became very jealous, even though Roberto claimed that he had no clue who these women were. A fight broke out, which ended in Roberto being arrested for domestic violence. Margaret claimed that Roberto hit her, then later recanted her statement and said that she didn't feel that he was actually dangerous. She never should have filed this report, and she pretty much just said, you know, she wanted to drop the charges. So he was never prosecuted. But the situation with Margaret wasn't the only time that Roberto had been involved in a similar type of dispute. Another woman named Kelly was actually engaged to Roberto for a time period, and she alleged that he started acting erratically and scary when she tried to end their relationship. Her reasons for calling off the engagement were also due to infidelity and the fact that Roberto liked to really charm his way into the hearts of women despite already being in a relationship with one. Roberto had a rough time with Kelly leaving him, and he couldn't accept it, so he started stalking her and harassing the people that she knew. One night, Roberto was following Kelly and saw her giving another man a ride home, so he swerved in front of her car, which nearly caused an accident, And then he wouldn't move out of the way, so he was kind of blocking her from leaving. After this incident, Kelly filed a restraining order and stated that she was genuinely scared of Roberto. But just like Margaret had done, Kelly later recanted her statement and claimed that that wasn't what happened at all. Through the investigation, officers spoke to many people that Roberto knew, including friends, polo players, and one of Roberto's former patrons. And despite the claims of women who dated Roberto, others who knew him insisted that he was nothing but charming and polite to everybody that he encountered. And as for Suzanne, police didn't really learn anything alarming about her at all. She had no history of violence or any offenses for that matter, and everybody who knew her just really described her as being an awkward woman who loved animals more than people. One thing was for sure Suzanne definitely did not fit the profile of a cold blooded murderer. But yet, she had a dead man in her kitchen, and the story of how he got there was really pretty complex.
0: While Roberta was living in Florida and working as a groom for the polo season, All Suzanne could think about was his return to Virginia and this wonderful fairy tale life they'd have together. They kept in touch for the six months while he was working in Florida, and when he finally returned in 1996, the romantic relationship really took off. In many ways, it was good for Roberto. When he was with Suzanne, he drank less alcohol and lost his extra weight, and the two of them spent romantic moments together on the estate. They'd have picnic lunches by the barn and ride horses through the beautiful hilly landscape. During this time, Roberto was really becoming someone in the polo world, and he made connections with all the right people to advance his own career in polo playing. Unfortunately, Roberto became somewhat blinded by puppy love, which distracted him from the focus he had for polo and his dedication waned. He was so obsessed with this relationship with Suzanne that he actually declined to return to Florida the next polo season, which meant that he would need to find other work to do in Virginia. In an effort to spend as much time and be as close to Suzanne as possible, Roberto offered himself up as a helper around Ashland Farm. He did everything from picking apples, mowing the grass, fixing fences, gathering hay for the horses, and clearing the land. It was all actual labor, and pretty much did it all for nothing but the affection of Suzanne. Something about Suzanne that might seem a little strange is that even though she was born with more wealth than many of us will ever experience in our lifetime, she was extremely frugal. Just because Suzanne had the money did not mean that she wanted to spend it, and she didn't. She didn't want to spend it, and she didn't spend it. The people around her even noticed that the mansion was mostly unfurnished, and the parts of the estate that were furnished only had a few pieces of old furniture. One room that was completely full, though... Was the gun room. Suzanne had millions and barely had a couch to sit on, but she had an entire room full of weapons, no doubt a courtesy of her father's business within her arms. Even though she lived on this massive estate, she refused to maintain a staff or hire workers to take care of all parts of the sprawling property. So she allowed Roberto to take on all these tasks, and of course, she barely paid him a dime. The deal was that she would pay for his horses and she'd be his polo sponsor in return for the work he was doing around the farm. The two of them, with Suzanne's funds, plan to put together a polo team in which Roberto would be the star of the show. So now we have this awkward situation where Roberto and Suzanne are romantically involved. He's infatuated with her and she is reaping the benefits of having this doting boyfriend, who's also a hard worker that helps around the estate, a great polo player, and she can sponsor him and really stay involved in the sport. It all sounds like a pretty great deal for Suzanne, but problems emerged when Roberto realized that he was spending all of his time working on the daily chores of the estate, and he was left with little time to practice polo or really play at
1: all. As the hard physical tasks around the estate began to take a toll on Roberto, cracks in the relationship with Suzanne started to reveal themselves. One of the main disagreements they had was over the way the polo horses were treated. Suzanne, who had always been a huge animal lover, felt that the polo ponies should be treated as pets, and she just would not accept that polo horses have different training needs and exercise requirements. Roberto had grown up in Argentina where polo ponies are treated like any other workhorse. They're heavily exercised and their diet is monitored very closely. But Suzanne felt that this excessive and strenuous exercise regimen that Roberto wanted was borderline abusive to these animals. And this became a major point of contention between them. And I can totally understand how that would drive a wedge between you and somebody else because that, I I feel like no matter what side you're on with that, like you're going to be very in your belief system. So he came from a different. Place he came from a different entire lifestyle. He didn't have horses like just as pets because it was a fun thing. He didn't grow up with money, so the horses that Roberto you know had growing up they had jobs. You know they were work horses, and that's how they were treated. They were treated as work horses. And Suzanne, of course, grew up where she had to you know she got to take care of these beautiful horses and ponies and all that, and it was just a completely right. different thing. So she had a different opinion, you know, of how animals should be treated than he did, and I can totally see how. She would be like, I don't like this. And he would be like, you should get over it. This is fine. So I can see how that would cause a serious problem for the two of them. The fact that this arrangement that they had settled into left Susan paying for really all of Roberto's expenses also started to become a huge problem for Susan, who, as we said, is very frugal. But Roberto was determined to make this work. Once Susan agreed to start her polo team and gave Roberto the job of writing in her polo matches, he didn't care about the fact that he wasn't making any money. All he cared about was that he was doing what he loved, which was playing polo. He was having his bills paid for him. And he even liked that he got to be there for Suzanne because keep in mind, he actually likes her. He thinks he's in love with her. He thinks they're going to have this great future together. So according to those who knew him, he really was head over heels for her. He constantly gushed about how sweet she was and what a great cook she was. But the topic of the polo horses continued to be a source of a lot of stress. As the summer of 1997 went on, tensions rose. It was almost as though Suzanne was sick of the polo circuit entirely, and she was talking of possibly retiring the horses and just caring for them as pets. Her dedication to them as polo horses also seemed to be non-existent. Roberto and other polo players noticed it too. The condition of the horses had declined and it was affecting Roberto's performance on the field when he was playing with these horses. One day he got really upset because something in his polo match was not going his way and he was heard saying, quote, I'm not playing well today. These horses are not properly exercised, end quote. Just when things were really starting to get uncomfortable and tense, Suzanne learned that her father, Sam, was very sick. She decided to go spend 10 days in Monaco with him, and she invited Roberto to stay in her mansion and to tend to the animals and the chores while she was gone. This was actually a pretty big deal because in the entire time they'd been dating, Suzanne had never once let Roberto stay with her, not even overnight. So when she moved his horses to the estate, Roberto actually did not come along with them. He rented a room in some other lady's house up the street, which I just didn't really fully understand that situation. Yeah. And so he like he went to the I, I don't know. I think it was a Suzanne knew the woman, but. But yeah, he, she like uh, she like facilitated this like for this woman to take Roberto in and give him a room to rent, and so he just rented a room in somebody else's house, not in Suzanne's house. It was the strangest thing. Yeah,
0: and for her to be so cheap, I mean, I'm assuming she's obviously paying for that room, so you'd think she'd be like, "Let's save ten bucks. You can sleep on the old couch in the gun room or something." Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Seriously, it just it, it doesn't make it's it's definitely a bizarre it arrangement, and I don't really understand exactly where suzanne was going with her intentions for this relationship i don't know i have opinions but i'll save them for the end okay so while suzanne was gone to visit her family roberto maybe not even surprisingly felt kind of somewhat at ease and his friendly and social personality came back out and he allegedly even entertained a few women while suzanne was overseas when suzanne
0: returned so did this heavy mood In late July, Suzanne started telling people that she and Roberto were having too many problems, but that she was afraid of what he would do if she tried to break things off with him. This was totally the opposite of what Roberto had been telling his friends about his relationship with Suzanne. He had actually told people that he was going to marry Suzanne soon and that they had this big elaborate plan to move to Montana and start a wildlife rescue. But by August of 1997, close friends of the couple noticed that something had changed between them. They were not nearly as obsessed with each other as they had been at the start of the summer, and sometimes it even seemed like a strain for Suzanne to be around Roberto. She confided in a friend that she was planning and trying to figure out how to leave him, but she said that Roberto was scary and had been threatening her. Vanity Fair actually did a documentary special about this case, and the journalist who worked on the story pointed out that this arrangement of Suzanne paying for everything and having all the money while Roberto had nothing was really a recipe for disaster right from the start. When you take someone who is really born without you know, access to all this money, literally leaves his home country for a better life and then promises them the world, that person's going to be pretty upset when it all comes crashing down. And Roberto was upset. According to Suzanne, Roberto even threatened to kill her and he had been abusive and dangerous in the past. In August of 1997, Suzanne actually went to the police and said that she was trying to break up with her boyfriend and she was concerned that he might physically harm her, so she wanted to file a report and have it all documented. At any point, Suzanne could have simply fired Roberto and told him to stay off her property, but according to her friends and later her attorney, Roberto had a psychological control over her that held her captive in fear of what he might do if she took such a strong stance— Keep in mind, though, polo is literally Roberto's lifeline. It's really all he has. If Suzanne says, no more money, no more ponies, no more polo, Roberto has absolutely nothing. So the sheriff advised her to take out a restraining order, but Suzanne did not take that advice. So in the meantime, even though there were clear signs of trouble, Suzanne and Roberto continued to attend polo events together, and Suzanne was secretly talking to the police during this time about Roberto's alleged abusive and threatening behavior. She had scheduled another meeting with the police sergeant for Monday, September 8th.
1: That weekend, Suzanne and Roberto were scheduled to attend polo matches, which Suzanne really was not thrilled about. She did not want to go. One of the matches was actually in Pennsylvania, which meant loading up a trailer full of horses and traveling out of state with Roberto, and at this point, she's not all that fond of Roberto, so she really didn't want to, but they went on the trip anyway, and they kept up this charade. They were in Pennsylvania for Friday night and for the match on Saturday, and then they drove three hours back to Virginia on Saturday night. The next day, September 7th, Roberto had plans to play in a very prestigious polo match that was in Maryland. And the previous day at the match in Pennsylvania, he could not stop gushing about this amazing match that he was going to be playing in. It was the United States against Argentina, and there was going to be a lot of really important people there. Roberto was really excited to have this chance to play for, you know, to represent his home country and to show everybody what he could do on the field. This was a really, really big deal. This was a huge match for Roberto and for his polo career. But it was that very morning at around 9 a.m. that Roberto was shot dead inside Suzanne's home. When police arrived on the scene, they found Roberto's body lying in a pool of blood in the kitchen. He was shot while sitting at the kitchen table, apparently eating breakfast. His body was found face down with his legs still under the table. Suzanne was standing near the door when help arrived and she told the officers that there had been an argument that turned dangerous when Roberto allegedly pulled a knife on her. Suzanne's twin sister, Diana, was also in the house when the police got there. Suzanne had cuts to her arms that were still bleeding when the first responders arrived, and she alleged that Roberto had been the one to inflict these wounds in this rage-filled fight between them. A pistol was found on the floor in the kitchen with the slide locked open, which, meet, which indicated to the police that all the rounds that were in the gun had been fired, and then the slide you know, stayed open afterwards. They found four shell casings on the floor and around the kitchen. When Suzanne called 911 minutes earlier, she had told the dispatcher that she had been the one to shoot Roberto, and she alleged that he had tried to kill her, which is what led to the shooting. When the responding officer started asking Suzanne, you know, tell me more, what exactly happened here? Suzanne just didn't say anything. She just clammed up and said nothing. And Diana, her sister, also offered no explanation either. And so the officer really got impatient and he placed Suzanne in handcuffs while he scoped out the rest of the crime scene. Suzanne's injuries were photographed and Diana contacted an attorney while many first responders worked on the scene. At one point, Suzanne told a deputy that she wanted to go inside and brush her teeth and change her shoes. And those are two very odd things whenever you have police at your house because you You have just shot somebody to say, like, I would like to go brush my teeth now. So, of course, the officers were like, "Okay, there's no reason why we can't let you do that.
0: I think that's weird, though. Isn't that weird to be like, go ahead and do that? We know you just shot this guy. You have a whole room full of guns. But yeah, go brush your teeth. They are a little stinky. That's weird.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they did follow her through the house. They went up the stairs and they, you know, escorted her to a bathroom and she brushed her teeth and she changed her shoes and put on um, a sweatshirt, I think, too. She did a couple of things. And the police bagged some of the stuff that she was wearing, the shoes that she took off and some of her other clothing that she had on. They bagged it and collected it as evidence. So Deanna told the police, Deanna is the twin sister, told the police that it was around nine that morning when she heard three gunshots coming from her sister's home. But she said that she did not walk over there to see what was going on for about five minutes. And by the time she arrived, Suzanne was already on the phone with the police. And we are going to get into the rest of this crazy story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors.
0: I don't know about you, but the days feel a little longer lately, so I've been looking for something to do to kill a little time throughout the day. Enter Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a puzzle game that's a whole lot of fun while also giving you a way to exercise your brain by completing different levels and uncovering new levels of a story. What makes it a lot of fun for me is that although it's an individual game, it's one I can still compete with family and friends with, egging each other on and making sure I keep the status of most levels passed at a cool 1100.
1: Best Fiends is a great way to take a brain break throughout the day. I just pull up my app, rearrange my fiends, and try my best to clear a few levels on Best Fiends. You know the feeling of euphoria you get after all the dishes are put away and your kitchen is nice and clean? It's kind of like that when you clear a new level, only with Best Fiends, your feeling of bliss isn't immediately replaced with rage after one of your kids comes behind you and dumps three bowls they've been hoarding in their room.
0: Best Fiends has over 100 million downloads, so it's easy to see why this five-star rated game is a must-play. There's constantly new levels, events, and challenges that are added all the time, so Best Fiends stays exciting and challenging. I love playing a quick round of Best Fiends while I'm putting laundry away or cooking dinner. Anytime I have a few minutes to spare, Best Fiends is my go-to boredom buster.
1: Download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Finding the perfect bra is kind of like finding the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You chase a lot of rainbows before you finally find it which is why we want to save you the time of chasing rainbows and introduce you to the pot of gold at the end, Third Love. I know buying a bra online seems a little crazy, but Third Love bras are different because they are designed to fit you, not the other way around. And if you aren't sure about your size, you're not alone. Third Love has an online fit finder quiz that asks just a few questions about your current bra. And to date, over 16 million women have taken the quiz
0: and they believe that 2021 should be your time to shine. It's a great time to focus on what makes you happy, and that all starts at the bottom, literally, with better bras and underwear. 3rd Love bras are the most comfortable bra I've ever owned. They are so comfortable and so cute, I now own three. If you're on the fence about trying 3rd Love, there's never been a better time to try, thanks to 3rd Love's perfect fit promise. 3rd Love stands by their products, so if you don't love your new bra, exchanges
1: and returns are free. 3rd Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they're offering our listeners 20% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash murder now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 20% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com murder for 20% off today.
0: Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home?
1: Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply.
0: Now back to the episode. So before the break, we had the police at Suzanne and Deanna's farm. And uh, Deanna's telling the police that around 9 o'clock, she heard these three gunshots coming from her home Five minutes later, she walks over to see what's going on. And when she gets in, Suzanne's already there talking to the police. So Suzanne wasted no time getting a lawyer. And before the crime scene had even been processed, her attorney was already there. He arrived just in time for Suzanne to be placed under arrest. When they arrived at the police station, Suzanne's attorney, Blair Howard, asked for a few minutes alone with her to find out what happened. She told her attorney that she'd been trying to break off her relationship And this whole arrangement that she had with Roberto, but he wasn't taking no for an answer. Suzanne allegedly had told Roberto the night before that he wasn't welcome there anymore and that she didn't want to be in a relationship with him any longer. She'd asked him to gather his things and leave. That next morning, she expected that Roberto would be gone, but when she woke up, he was still there. She said she went over to him while he was eating his croissants at the table and told him that he had to take his things and leave. And she was really serious about it when she told him to do that the night before. She said at this point that Roberta became irritated with her. And, you know, of course, he's supposed to play in this huge, huge polo game that day. But he couldn't do that without Suzanne since she had the trailer and the horses and the money for the trip. Suzanne said that she told Roberto that she knew the match was important to him and she said he could still go, but he could not take her horses for the game. It was at this point that Suzanne says Roberto pulled out the knife and threatened her with it by holding the knife against her face and threatening to kill her. She alleged that he cut her arm slowly with a knife and that she was at this point so terrified that he was going to kill her if she didn't calm him down. She said at this point she starts telling him it's okay, he can take the horses and ride the horses, and specifically she said, quote, no one is going to die today, end quote. She continued to try and diffuse the situation by getting up from the table and making coffee and cleaning up her wounds, telling Roberto that they were just going to forget about all this and just move on. Suzanne said she thought about the pistol she had stashed in the kitchen cabinet right below the coffee making area, and she thought if she could just get her hands on that gun, she could gain control of the situation and ensure that Roberto wouldn't hurt her. She said she bent down to retrieve the gun when she heard the sound of the chair scraping across the floor as though Roberto was standing up. Suzanne said in that moment she felt that Roberto was going to get up to attack her, so she quickly turned around, gun in hand, and shot him. She told her attorney that what she saw when she turned around was a very scary and angry looking Roberto coming out of the chair and she thought in that moment that he was going to kill her. She said she then dropped the gun and ran from the house to call 911.
1: But the evidence found at the scene didn't quite tell the same story. In fact, some of the evidence at the scene actually raised some suspicions. Although Suzanne claimed that she had dialed 911 right away, Officers responding to the scene believed, based on evidence, that at least 35 minutes had passed between the shooting and the 911 call. Authorities also thought there was something off about the injuries that Suzanne claimed she sustained when Roberto pulled his knife on her. She had about 10 scratches on her arms, and what struck the officers was that, other than these scratches, there was no sign of trauma or force, really, to her arm, And the scratches were all very superficial and had clean edges, which they didn't feel was likely if Suzanne was actually fighting for her life. They thought that these cuts would have been messy and jagged, and they definitely would not just be clean slices across her arm. So the question was, did Roberto cut Suzanne's arm, or did she do it herself? When first responders arrived, the blood coming from Roberto's body was already coagulating. So it didn't make much sense to them how Suzanne's wounds were still actively bleeding, if she had sustained them during the attack, which would be, you know, about the same amount of time. Instead, the theory was that Suzanne had sliced her own arm just before dialing 911. And maybe it was even an afterthought, you know, on her part and just a way to add more, you know, to her story of self-defense. But either way, the cuts were too fresh to have happened the way that Suzanne said that they did. In the kitchen where Roberto's body was found, investigators found no sign of any major struggle or altercation. Everything in the kitchen was tidy and undisturbed, and it definitely didn't look as though there was any type of fight that took place in that little room. The fact that Roberto's feet and legs were under the table indicated that he was not standing up when he was shot. If he was standing, then how would his legs have gotten back up under the table? That was kind of the question on the investigators' minds. So these all would be questions that a jury would have to decide the answers to. After refusing to provide a statement to the police the day of the shooting, Suzanne was charged with murder and booked, but just two weeks later, she was released on bond. She returned to her estate and awaited trial. Eight months later, in May of
0: 1998, Suzanne's trial began. She maintained her story that Roberta went into the home uninvited and threatened her. Her defense was self-defense. At the end of the trial, Blair Howard addressed the jury and said, quote, the irresistible conclusion here is that she was being assaulted. She was cut, and in defense of her life, in her own home, she had a right to take this man's life. That's the law. End quote. But prosecutors presented their version, which was much different than Suzanne's defense. They asserted that Roberto was shot while seated at the table and likely had no idea what was happening. They said that although Roberto did have a knife on him, the one Suzanne said he cut her with it wasn't uncommon for people working on farms and stuff to have knives and other tools on them for their daily work with the horses. Prosecutors alleged that this was not a self-defense shooting, but instead it was a premeditated murder. After both sides rested their case, the grand jury made their decision. On May 13, 1998, Suzanne Cummings was convicted, not of first-degree murder, but of manslaughter. It should have been a happy moment for the prosecution, but things quickly turned unusual when it came time for Suzanne to be sentenced. While the jury did agree that Suzanne had no right to kill Roberto at that particular moment that she did, they did partially accept her story that she was fearful of him and that she acted in self-defense in some way. The jury sentenced Suzanne to just 60 days in jail and a fine of just $2,500. $2,500. Which, my gosh, there's literally a show called 60 Days In. Regular oh, people on the streets just go I to know. jail for 60 days for the heck of it. What on earth? That is such a. It's just crazy to be manslaughter, that be the conviction, and then that be the sentence. It, it just, wow. I know. There was certainly mixed emotion about this. Suzanne was obviously very happy and she quietly accepted her punishment, meaning she was obviously not going to appeal a sentence like that based on her conviction. But those who knew Roberto were devastated and felt like Suzanne had just gotten away with murder.
1: An even bigger slap in the face to Roberto's loved ones was that Suzanne received special treatment during her very short time in jail. She was placed in a cell block alone so that she wouldn't have to serve her time with other inmates. And her room had a telephone of its own and more luxuries than the average person who is in jail. So to accommodate this, five of the other inmates at the jail were actually transferred to other jails at the expense of the taxpayer to the tune of $40 per inmate per day that They were at these other facilities and these other women who got transferred out, I had read one article where um, they interviewed a couple of them and they said that they, of course, were like really angry that they got transferred out because now their families couldn't go visit them anymore because now they were too far away and it like affected like different things for them. And they're like, wait a minute, like, why are we getting transferred out so that this lady can come hang out out for two months? Like, you know what I mean? So, yeah. So they were not happy either that they had gotten transferred to other facilities. Yeah. Jail officials said that they isolated Suzanne in this way to avoid any confrontation between her and the other inmates that were serving longer sentences for lesser crimes. Even when Suzanne was locked up, she had a relaxed set of rules and a privileged experience in which she was allowed to have as many visitors as she wanted. And sometimes people would go and see her for several hours a day. And these visitors, you know, such as her mom and her sister, they were allowed to bring in special food and snacks for Suzanne, which, of course, is not allowed. You do not get to bring people in jail food items for them to just, you know, your mom doesn't just show up with some like homemade, you know. Brownies. bake goods for you. That's, yeah, exactly. That's not a thing. Uh, so many believe that Suzanne was receiving this special treatment because she was a very wealthy person. The chairman of the county board said, quote, it's a strange sentence in the first place. When someone gets 60 days for shooting someone and five years for writing bad checks, it makes you wonder about the influence that wealth has on our judicial system, end quote. Suzanne served just 51 days before being released for good behavior. While she was going through this whole process, her father sadly passed away in Monaco. And from the things that I read, it sounded like he was never informed about Susan's entire situation with being convicted of murder or of manslaughter and having to do any time in jail. He died not knowing about any of this craziness that went on in the United States. So, two weeks after her release, Roberto's mom and sister filed a $103 million wrongful death suit against Suzanne, who had since returned to her Ashland Farms estate. Being the naive woman that she was, Suzanne really could not understand why members of the community had such terrible things to say about her. And, you know, they she didn't understand why they were making fun of her and saying mean things about her, gossiping about her around the town, which that was another thing that I learned. Um, this area that they, she was from, this area in Virginia where she lived, where a lot of wealthy people had estates and everything. Apparently, it is like gossip central there. And they just lo- and like this story to them. People who are involved in polo and all of that, like this was a huge deal around their community, which makes sense because they're all in that world. And it is a very like I feel like it's a very private and closed off world as we've kind of scene because you and I don't know anything about this world. You know, this is not not to us. So for them, this story of this billionaire, you know, heiress and this polo player like that was just right up, you know, their alley. Basically, that was like true crime for this particular group. of people. They really went crazy for this story. Um, And Suzanne did not understand why when she was released from, you know, jail, why everybody hated her. And, you know, she just kept telling her attorney, that she really wanted her life to just go back to being normal. She wanted to go back to her estate and live quietly and have things return to normal. Unfortunately, she would have to find her new normal somewhere else. And in 2003, she put the estate up for sale and planned to move with her sister to another estate that their father had purchased years before. It was the second estate that he had bought when he bought the Ashland Farms estate. Yeah, the one that I mentioned earlier. Um, So they were going to go and live in that estate. And she sold the... Other estate. And now it's beautiful. I've seen pictures of it online the way it looks now. And like the new owners have really, I mean, it's a beautiful, like multi-million dollar estate. So of course, yeah. It's
0: pretty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. What a crazy story though. I've never heard anything, I mean, just nothing about it, to be quite honest. And it seems like something you would have heard about because there's just a lot of going on a lot going on. And even down to the prison sentence that was so small for the conviction, you know. It, I don't know. It's it's a crazy story. Lots of a lot of information, though. You did a great job with it, Mandy.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of information. There was a book that had a ton of information, and I thought it was really well written. Um, we'll put it, of course, in the show notes, but I did want to give it a mention. It is called "A Woman Scorned: The Shocking Real Life Case of Billionaire's Killer Susan Cummings," and it is by Lisa Pulitzer there was so many details. I was fascinated by the entire book. There's so much to this case. There's so many articles that even have so much more detail about Roberto, about Suzanne and the life that she had. I feel like this is one of those unique cases where there is a lot of like background yeah. on everybody involved just because of who they were. And like, they did have such extensive backgrounds and there was a lot of information. So this is definitely one of those stories though, that I, the ending, it does kind of make you I don't know. It makes you think because I can see how it's like it's frustrating and very like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that she only served 51 days for manslaughter. She shot this man in her, you know, in her home. She admitted Admitted that she did it. Yeah. Right. And then that's what she that was the time that she was like got and it is crazy to think about that. But then at the same time, I mean, she did have a good defense, I feel like for a jury and that, and the jury also at, you know, later spoke and said that they really tried to consider everything about the case. So they looked at, you know, Roberto's history of violence or near, you know, near violence and the times that he had reports dropped against him and all that, and listened to Suzanne's story. And they took everything into account from their backgrounds to, you know, everything. And, it's got to be so hard being on a jury like that with a case like this. Like there's just so much. Right. Well, the
0: longer we do this, the less I want to be on a jury. Like I used to want to be on one so bad, but now I just think, I don't know. You know, you just have to take every little piece into consideration. You don't want to do the wrong thing and it's a lot of pressure. So yeah, I, you know, I don't know. This is, this is a really, this is one that just makes you think uh, both sides of it. Just, you know, what the only two people that really know what happened one of them is no longer alive.
1: Okay. So I thought that was a wonderful first episode of the year. And I'm also equally excited to turn the page and do our very first last thing before we go of the year. Yay. So Melissa came up with an idea and I actually really loved it because it is the start of a new year, as we just said. And we all can use some good advice to start the new year and who are the best people ever to get advice from Melissa?
0: <laughs> I mean, not my children, but some people's children.
1: <laughs> yeah. Some people's children, as it turns out, give amazing kid advice. So we're going to share some, are they all from some are from are Facebook? All from yeah. All of them are from yeah.
0: uh listeners. So if you have not if you don't follow the show on social media, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Where I think in the new year, that's one of my goals is to have more listener engagement with the last thing before we go and make sure we get you guys' stories and stuff out because there's always so many funny ones and uh, we love to share them. So follow us on um, all of those places if you're not and you'll see these questions. And right now we're going to kick it off with some Facebook. We have a couple Facebook and a couple Instagrams. And I just basically asked, what is some great advice you were given as a from your kid or you gave as a kid and the first one's from uh denise m on facebook she said i was a little lost trying to find a friend's house and said out loud to my then five-year-old oh man which way should i go she responded very matter-of-factly the way you should go is the path you can take and i (laughs) thought that was an oddly profound statement i love that so much
1: (laughs) yes i know i like that i feel like it is one of those things that you read and you're like huh like, yeah you know, i'd read that on a dev like it belongs bar. on like a e-card yeah. or something. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect that's perfect okay so the next one is from don r and she is on facebook as well so she was having this conversation with her child who was four years old at the time and the child said whoever wins gets to eat the cherry and don said actually i don't like cherries and her four-year-old said then it would be a good idea to not win.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm mostly shocked. Dawn, cherries are my favorite fruit. My very, very favorite fruit. I could eat... I even got a cherry seed puller outer thing. Like that was like one of those things that I bought that I was like, wow, I'm an adult. I have a cherry pitter thing. I was like, this is the coolest thing in the entire world. Yeah. I love cherry. So that's really the most shocking thing to me about that, Dawn. Um, but I love that. That's like, do not win. Uh, I've solved all your problems. (laughs) Um, the next one from Molly on Facebook is, uh, her daughter, overly okay this is her daughter talking and she says i think she either needs lunch or a nap my daughter's overly loud recommendation to a woman in the checkout line ranting at the clerk about something yes
1: (laughs) (laughs) those two things will solve literally every problem i know
0: i know there was a john mulaney thing one time uh one of his like lines from his show where he said Do all my friends hate me or do I just need a nap? And I'm like, that makes so much sense.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's so adorable. Oh, my gosh. Okay. The next one is from Nadia O. And I saw this one on Facebook earlier. And this is my favorite thing ever. This is so sweet. Yes, I love this one. Okay. So Nadia says, when my son was about four years old, he told me that if I ever got mad or felt sad over something, just, quote, Picture a trash can and put it in there, then just forget about it, end quote. Nadia says, I practiced this ever since. And I'm going to too. I love that. I
0: love it so much. Yeah, Nadia, like, does your son have appointments? I would love to talk to him about a few things going on in my life. (laughs) I feel like he could solve them. So the next one on Facebook, Jenny um, S., she said, I asked my then four-year-old how the temperature was outside. And she responded, I wouldn't throw a duck out there. And that is... (laughs) That sounds like something my son would say, doesn't it? Just like where
1: you're like, "What? Where did yes. that even come
0: from?" So very solid but confusing advice. I love
1: that. Okay, so we're gonna move on to some submissions from Instagram. So we have first, uh, first one is from Becca Sue six one nine, and she says, "My six year old son, who is an extrovert, told me an introvert that it's not hard to get to know someone. All you got to do is talk, Mama. If you want to talk to someone, you learn about them. Or oh, if you talk to someone, you learn about them." That is so true too. I love talking yes. to people and you know how I am. I will talk to anybody for any length of time. I'm just a talker.
0: I so badly don't want there to be quiet. Like even at the dentist, I'm like, I need to talk. I don't like talking. now. I shouldn't say I don't like talking to people, but I'm very anxious and I'd rather say to myself, but the idea of silence makes it way worse. And I think as an introvert, I should be okay with that. But I love the, all you got to do is talk. Like duh, if you just talk to people, they'll tell you about themselves and you don't have to be an introvert anymore. That one's one's easier said than done, I have to be honest. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) But he sounds adorable. (laughs) So the next one is Homestead State of Mind. And uh, she said, after, I love this, after asking her dad a question and getting the usual, I don't care, whatever response, my eight-year-old told her dad, quote, you know, sometimes us girls just need a straight answer from a guy like you. (laughs)
1: isn't that the truth (laughs) that's so sweet i just like us girls that's so great i love it i love that okay and then we have one more and it is from elizabeth underscore elizabeth with a y and a z i like that spelling elizabeth says i remember my niece told me once quote the grass may be greener on the other side but mom doesn't let us go in other people's yards (laughs) so i put my favorite stuff in my yard and it keeps me happy End quote and i think about that a lot to this day that's so sweet. I also love that. I know. Well, it's so funny because I feel like kids have um, the stuff that they say is very like common common sense, you know. But as adults, we we don't simplify things. We the way complicate kids do things. Like that. Yep. So, yes, exactly. And so, like, yeah. So the kid like grass is greener on the other side, but mom doesn't let us go on the other side, <laughs> Like, you know. So it's like okay. So you have to make your own side better. But I love that. It's such simple advice, and it's like, oh yeah. If we would just think those things as adults, I feel like we would we would be a lot better off. I feel like we way overcomplicate everything.
0: (laughs) Oh, totally. Elizabeth, you, your kid and Nadia's kid need to get together and write like a self-help book. I really feel like we could do, we could do a lot with it.
1: (laughs) Do really, really well. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Good life advice.
1: Yeah. So I love those. And I feel like we got some great advice from children and I love children and they're great advice. And I mean, my kids, my kids try. They try to help me, but I feel like they end up roasting me more than helping me. My so. my uh, son asked why I
0: had a Wi-Fi symbol on my forehead, which I realized <laughs> is wrinkles. And so that was... <laughs> Well, it was a rough day. Yeah, it was it was tough around here. Didn't talk to him much of the day. No, I'm just kidding (laughs) Um, Yeah, these are so great. Thank you guys all for sending them in and again check out uh, our social media We're gonna try and do more of these more often And also if you haven't checked out our patreon account patreon.com slash moms murder podcast We have a lot of cool stuff on there I know we just talked about it on our patreon episode, but we do ad-free episodes over there We do bonus episodes every month last month. We did a youtube live thing And that was a lot of fun. We ate crickets. I mean, that's really all I have to say. You heard that right. Yes, you heard
1: that right. We ate crickets. We ate crickets. (laughs) And it was
0: like a two-day-before thing that we kind of figured out. But anyway, it was a long story. But it's a lot of fun. We're we're having fun over on Patreon. So if you want to check that out, that is where you can find
1: us. All right, guys. I think that is it for the week. We are happy to be back now in 2021. And yeah. And so we will see you next week at the same time, same place,